Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When a free-spirited woman vanishes without a trace. I kept calling and calling and calling. I knew something was wrong. Residents of the small New Hampshire town of Goshen fear there's a killer in their midst. We started to get a feeling that something was seriously wrong. Soon, suspicion turns to lovers past and present. We needed to start really digging into any types of grudges that may be held against her is a strange phone call key to unlocking the mystery. There was no question that somebody was forcing her to make that call, but he didn't have a chance of getting away with us. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? In the sleepy town of Goshen, New Hampshire, there's a postcard view around every turn. Quaint homes and historic buildings are tucked among the forests and glens surrounding Lake Gunnison. We have one community church, we have a relatively small town hall, a grange, a fire department, a library. We're a rural town. And with only 800 residents, it's a tight-knit community that makes folks feel right at home. The feeling that we know each other, if not by name, at least by sight, gives you a level of connectedness after moving to town in 2002 from California, there's no place else Edith Penn Meyer would rather be. Penn's charming cottage on Center Road sits right near the lake. It's the perfect perch for this 55-year-old. With two divorces behind her and her grown kids living nearby, Penn thrives on her own. She was born on Independence Day, July 4th. It was her birthday. So the Penn is from Independence that says a lot about her. The empty nester spends lots of time with close friend Joanne Rowe, who lives in the next town over. For Joanne, Penn is the best friend a girl could ask for. She looked you in the eye and heard everything you had to say. So I see kindness in her face. Both recovering alcoholics, the pair shares a special bond. We did shopping together. She 
helped me move. She gave me enough confidence to apply for a job, job I have, and I'm still there. But Joanne isn't Penn's only buddy. Whether Penn's at home or out and about, her loyal dog is always by her side. Fluff went everywhere with her. Fluff would come shopping with us. The dog would get served bottled water. So <laughs> Fluff was a very special dog, and, and that was her buddy. Penn enjoys everything life in Goshen has to offer, especially the people. She was very sharing, caring. Everyone came first. Penn loved everybody. Penn's in the prime of her life, living every day to its fullest. But just when Penn's beginning to hit her stride, someone pulls the rug out from underneath her. The morning of February 23, 2005, starts off like any other wintry Wednesday in this neck of the Granite State. Joanne Rowe is at home, waiting for Penn Meyer to drive her to an important appointment. Penn's supposed to be at the house by 9.30, but she's a no-show. I kept calling and calling and calling. She was not answering her phone. But that's unusual for a woman like Penn. Penn's so punctual, you could set your watch by her. I started thinking, well, if she had an accident, I know Penn. She would go to a house and call me and tell me, I'm going to be late. I just know she would have. I just know. By lunchtime, Joanne still hasn't heard from Penn. I called a few friends through AA that we both knew and try to see if one of them could get in touch with her boyfriend to find out what could have happened. But when Joanne catches up with Penn's boyfriend, Frank Adams, later that evening, he says he hasn't seen Penn all day either. Penn's steady beau for the past year, Frank spends most of his free time with Penn. But Frank tells Joanne he hasn't seen Penn since the night before. But Frank believes there may be a simple explanation for Penn's absence. He tells Joanne that Penn probably took a quick trip out of town. She would have told me. We just talked last night. There's no way she would have missed my appointment and just gone to see her friend. There's no way without calling. When Frank realizes just how worried Joanne is, he quickly changes his tune. He makes a beeline to Penn's house. When Penn doesn't answer his knock on the door, he lets himself inside with his own key. Her boyfriend called me at midnight and told me that he just called the state police because he had gone to her house and she wasn't there. According to Frank, Penn's car is in the garage, the dog's in the house, but there's no sign of Penn anywhere. When I knew the dog was left behind, that was a really strong sign for me that that wasn't right. And if something's not right, there's no better place to turn than to New Hampshire's finest. Trooper Jason Almstrom has been with the New Hampshire State Police for 15 years. The hills and valleys of Sullivan County are as familiar to him as the handle on his service weapon. It's a close-knit community, and that's the plus, because if you have something that goes on, you just have to go down to the local store and find out exactly what happened, because, you know, people talk. And when they do, they talk to him. Jason's a local boy, and people trust him. 
and just after six Thursday morning, Officer Olmstrom gets a chance to show just how reliable he is when he's asked to check on resident Penn Myers. Center Road is a country road, not many houses on that road, and neighbors are few and far between. When Officer Olmstrom pulls up to the house, there's a group of folks waiting for him in the driveway. Penn's boyfriend, Frank Adams, and some concerned family members. They're all convinced something's terribly wrong. Upon arrival, I spoke with the daughter and the son out in the driveway to find out the whereabouts of the mother was. Nobody had heard from her for at least, it's going on 24 hours now. Frank immediately lets Olmstrom inside and shows him around. I did a cursory check inside the residence and there appeared to be no signs of a struggle. Everything was neat and tidy. The good officer runs through a mental checklist. With adult missing person cases, we always got to look at, could they be with somebody else? Did the person have suicidal tendencies? Is there a medical issue? But it turns out that's not the case. Investigators quickly learned that Penn was in good health. However, she often helped those who weren't. She was heavily involved in helping people at the AA meetings. Somebody could have called her up and said they needed an intervention. But after nearly 20 years as a cop, Olmstrom knows not to ignore his instincts. I felt that something has happened to her because of her not contacting anybody to look after the dog or saying, hey, this is where I am. Officer Olmstrom hopes one of Penn's neighbors can shed some light on her disappearance. But only a few folks are home, and none recall seeing anything out of the ordinary. It looks like state troopers are going to need some help with this one. She lives on at least 20 acres, and there is a heavily wooded area along with Lake Gunnison, which is right off the property. To cover all the grounds, we called Fish and Game, and called our state police canine unit, as well as our helicopter. And while police now have eyes in the skies, Officer Olmstrom turns his gaze on Penn's very anxious boyfriend, Frank. He may have been the last one to see Penn before she vanished into thin air. The boyfriend had actually written detailed notes about what had happened in, in a chronological order as to when he called the police. A detailed timeline of his girlfriend's every move before she disappeared. It sounds like police have an eager helper on their hands. But is Frank's eagerness really just an attempt to cover his tracks? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. All year round, New Hampshire delights visitors and natives alike with its natural beauty. But the day after one of Goshen's very own disappears without a trace. Residents are learning that even small towns can harbor big secrets. In a small town, people, people talk. Rumors start very rapidly. And before long, the gossip about Penn Meyer reaches town librarian Cynthia Phillips. The two nature lovers often ran into each other out on the hiking trails. Cynthia is shaken by the news of Penn's sudden disappearance. The first memory I have is speaking with one of our police officers who did ask, had I seen Penn, but I could see from the body language and the tone of voice that something very bad had happened. But right now, New Hampshire State Police have no idea what that could be. So far, an intensive search in and around town has come up empty. With the amount of manpower that went into these searches and coming up with no trace of Penn was very frustrating. And Detective Sergeant Russell Lamson doesn't enjoy being frustrated. It's getting results that's gotten him this far in his career. Russ Lamson started off as a rookie cop in another small New Hampshire town, just like Goshen. But he strived for more. When I would see the New Hampshire State Police roll onto a scene, to me, that was the example of what I believed was the most professional law enforcement agency in New Hampshire, and I wanted to be a part of that. Lamson's dream came true in 1994, when he became a state trooper and quickly became one of their go-to detectives. As lead on the Penn Meyer case, he's eager to speak with Penn's overly helpful boyfriend, Frank Adams. Just because someone reports someone missing doesn't mean they couldn't be a part of why they're missing. Police aren't sure what to think about Adams, but they want to know exactly what he's been up to in the past few days. Penn's friend Joanne is shocked to learn that police want to speak to Penn's doting boyfriend. I guess any investigation like that, they 
automatically go to the spouse or the significant other. And boy, it never crossed my mind that he was involved. And he insists he had nothing to do with Penn's disappearance and quickly offers an alibi. He claims he was an hour away up in Concord for most of Wednesday, when police believe Penn vanished. The indication to us and through the interview with him is that he was telling us the truth. Sure enough, Frank was exactly where he said he was on the day in question. We were able to follow up on that alibi with receipts and things he had did that day. Not only does Frank give police a timeline of events, but he even names a possible suspect. Frank tells police about a man named Ken Carpenter, who regularly attended AA meetings with Penn and Joanne. I've known Ken Carpenter longer than I've known Penn. And he was a friendly enough, happy enough individual. A lot of the other men in the program respected and admired the sobriety he had. But Frank never particularly cared for Ken and the way he often treated Penn. Ken wasn't exactly fond of her and let everyone know it. Penn got on his bad side when she learned he was cheating on his wife with fellow AA member Kathy Buchanan, a good friend of Penn's. Penn was instrumental in assisting her getting out of a relationship with this man. And Ken Carpenter was very, very upset about Penn being involved. According to Penn's boyfriend, from that moment on, Ken had it in for Penn. Ken blamed her for ending his affair with AA member Kathy Buchanan. It looks like it's time for police to have a little chat with Mr. Carpenter. We needed to get a timeline on him. We needed to find his whereabouts, where he was. We wanted to hear, in his words, what his relationship was with Penn. Police need to find out if there's truth to all the stories, or if it's just gossip. It can be good and it can be bad, because there are so many stories that people have heard or they'll put a little twist on it. You gotta run down all those leads and that's time consuming. So, Almstrom hits the road and heads to the next town over to pay Ken a surprise visit. My supervisor and myself went down to Quimby Farm Road. It's very secluded in there. As we're driving down the driveway, I had gotten a description from the boyfriend as to what Ken Carpenter looks like. Lucky for detectives, they find Ken right away, working in his front yard. And he doesn't seem concerned to see them. When we first pulled in, which struck me as rather odd, you know, a state police cruiser pulling into your driveway just to look up and then go back down to what you're doing again, like it was nothing. Ken grudgingly stops what he's doing and immediately starts complaining up a storm. He was mad that we were there because he said that the boyfriend had called him, accusing him of doing something to her. And he said he hadn't seen Penn in over two weeks. But what about his alibi? Where was he on Wednesday, the day Penn disappeared? And he stated that he went snowshoeing around 7.20 in the morning. After that, he says he went back home to change, and he was going to a counselor's appointment over in Claremont for a 9.30 appointment. Looks like police need to follow up on Ken's appointments before they can cross him off the suspect list. Walked away thinking that maybe he knows something, but, you know, we've got to track down some other leads to try to get a, a hold on this. Police have a lot of legwork to do, so they bring in trooper Eric Berube. He's as hardworking as they come. On the force for almost 10 years, Berube is an ace detective. 
and Detective Sergeant Lamson's right-hand man. Just one month after making Detective, Baruby finds himself immersed in a good old-fashioned mystery. I always joke around with people and say, you know, oh, my first call was a dog complaint, my second call was a neighbor dispute, and my third call was the Penmire case. And the Meyer investigation is shaping up to be a doozy. Generally, a missing person case will turn into a homicide case. My feeling was that she had run into some trouble and we were not going to locate her in a safe condition. With the clock ticking, investigators work quickly to confirm Ken Carpenter's alibi. Security footage from a Newport, New Hampshire gas station shows that he was out early the day Penn went missing. It didn't help or hurt at that point. The only thing it confirmed was that he was at this gas station at the time that the video showed him there. It did not confirm any of the other parts of his story. So investigators asked Ken to come on down to the station. When police ask him again where he was on the day in question, his story changes. He now says after snowshoeing, he went directly home instead of to his scheduled counseling appointment in Newport. When a person lies when we interview them, it can indicate a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily indicate that they're guilty of committing a crime. With no hard evidence to connect Ken to Penn's disappearance, they let him go. Investigators aren't sure who's to blame for the crime just yet. But soon, they'll have two new names to add to their roster of suspects. When we learned that Penn had more than one ex-husband, we then knew that we had to go and talk to both. Any cop worth his badge knows how often exes come into play when a wife goes missing. Ex-husbands will always have a motive. Oftentimes, they've been left, and they are upset about that. It's been more than a day since anyone in Goshen, New Hampshire, has seen Penn Myers' smiling face. Her disappearance has folks on edge, especially her close friend, Joanne Rowe. Joanne's holding out hope, but knows there's a good chance she may never see Penn again. Still didn't want to believe that anything, anything like that happened, where nobody heard from Penn. Like everyone else in town, Prosecutor Kirsten Wilson has been keeping an eye on the investigation since day one. When you have a case such as this one, where there are a number of red flags, uh, that something is not right, we're called in right away. As a longtime county prosecutor, she knows how quickly a missing persons case can turn into a homicide investigation. Missing persons cases are a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack. So you start pulling at threads and trying to unravel the mystery of where the person went. And detectives know they can't sew up this case without looking at Penn's two ex-husbands. So investigators start with her most recent cast-off, James Tenley. According to family and friends, Penn's kept clear of James Tenley since they divorced just six months ago. Second marriage ended abruptly. Um, family did not have a lot to do with the second husband. It was definitely not a friendly thing necessarily, the way things split up. And so anytime you have that going on, the person's name goes down on a list as a potential suspect. James is a rough and tumble kind of guy. Not exactly a good fit for Penn. Has been perpetrated. The more investigators learn about James, the more they want to talk to him. 
I was suspicious of the second husband when I learned the dynamics of that relationship and that there could have been a possibility that he may have held a grudge. But just when things start looking up, investigators experience another letdown. It seems that James has a built-in alibi. He was down in Florida on a business trip at the time in question. The second ex-husband was in a state that was 1,500 miles away from our location, never in the state within the past uh, several days of the disappearance. Police quickly turned their attention to Penn's first husband and the father of her children. According to Penn's friends, Martin Wallace has a house in New London, just 20 miles outside of Goshen. The first ex-husband is a professional person, well-respected in the community in which he lives. The local bank executive split with Penn 20 years ago. When detectives pay him a visit at his office, he doesn't exactly seem distraught over Penn's disappearance. He was a quiet, reserved man who, I think upon first blush, comes across as somewhat cold because he is very professional. And that sort of stoic lack of emotion was a question in and of itself. But Martin insists he has nothing to do with Penn's sudden absence. He swears they're on good terms, often speaking on the phone about their kids. He was still very emotionally vested in Penn. They were friends. She was still doing her banking through him. While Martin is as cold as ice, it doesn't make him a killer. In fact, his alibi is as solid as Lake Gunnison in the dead of winter. His wife and several of his neighbors confirmed that he was at home when police suspect Penn went missing. They clearly were not angry at each other or separated bitterly or anything like that. They had a very, very cordial separation and were still very much in each other's lives. Looks like investigators have run into yet another dead end. It's on frustrating days like these when Detective Eric Barubi turns to an old friend for comfort his trusty six-string. Being a police officer is pretty stressful. Being a detective, a little bit even more so because you're constantly dealing with the worst of the worst. So you just want to be able to go home and de-stress. A good blues song always picks him up when he's feeling down. I do find that music soothes the soul. It takes the edge off of things. So if you've had a tough day, you can come home and play the type of songs that you like to hear. It makes you happy. Back at work, Barubi and his boss, Detective Sergeant Lamson, could sure use something to smile about. In the TV, everything gets wrapped up in an hour. In real life, it takes you an hour just to decide which place you're gonna to go to to get coffee. It, it takes you over an hour just to decide what lead you're gonna get investigated. Police are determined to check out every lead that comes their way. And right now, state police have more leads than they know what to do with. Just about everyone in town has called the barracks to put in their two cents. You have all of those people trying to fight for the attention of the lead investigator to get his attention on what leads have come in because he's the one who needs to prioritize it all and assign the, the leads out to investigators. But one lead in particular stands out. Penn's good friend from AA, Kathy Buchanan, is now convinced that she spoke to Penn right before she vanished. Her friend didn't tell me there was anything odd in Penn's voice. It was the content of what she was saying that was just so out of the ordinary. A strange call that just may be the clue to her disappearance. There was no question that from that phone call and what that phone call contained, that something was awry here, that this, somebody was forcing her to make that call. Is it someone police already have in mind? 
or is a new suspect about to enter the picture? It's been over two days since anyone in Goshen has last seen Penn Meyer. And the stress of not knowing if she's alive or dead is taking a toll on Penn's family and friends. There was a huge sense of, it can't be, attitude in the community. Can't be, couldn't be, couldn't be anything really bad. It just doesn't happen around here. But investigators working the case know anything's possible these days. That's why they're determined to keep digging for answers. Tenacity is what makes a good detective. You have to be able to hang on to a case, work the leads of the case. You need to find a, another way to come at the suspect if your initial ideas don't pan out. And police are about to go get some much needed help doing just that. Kathy Buchanan, Penn's AA buddy, wants police to know all about an unusual conversation she had with Penn on the day she disappeared. On February 23rd, it was early on in the morning, Penn's friend received a call where she worked, and it was Penn on the phone. That phone call was being made from Penn's house. Kathy tells police that she and Penn often talked about her ex-boyfriend, Ken Carpenter, an ill-fated love affair between Kathy and Ken that police know all about. Penn assisted her in getting a restraining order because when she tried to end the relationship, the man did not want to end the relationship and began to stalk her. But for some reason, during this conversation, Kathy says that Penn had a sudden change of heart about Ken, a married man. Penn told her that she really should get back together with him. I was mistaken. You really should be together. You guys are meant to be. The friend said that the phone call was extremely out of the ordinary because it was 100% contradictory to the advice that she had been given by Penn as early as the previous day. Police aren't sure what prompted the strange call, but they're determined to find out. But before they get to the bottom of the matter, another caller, this one anonymous, drops a tip right in their lap. This caller said that he was a friend of Penn's and that he had brought her to the airport and that she had flown off to the islands with a boyfriend. Sounds far-fetched. Police are pretty sure Penn's boyfriend Frank Adams is still in town and doubt she's dating anyone else. But the male caller insists it's true and has proof. He said that he didn't want to get involved in anything, but he had hidden a key by the Goshen General Store near the payphone. Good thing the general store is just a few blocks from the police station. So when investigators went down to the Goshen General Store, they found a key taped to the underside of the payphone with this orange duct tape. The key was in a baggie, and the key belonged to a safety deposit box that we determined was Penn Myers, one of the local banks. Down at the bank, the mystery deepens. Bank officials tell police Penn hasn't opened the box in over a year, and no one else has tried to gain access to it either. We found just some family heirlooms and personal belongings in that safety deposit box and a passport. Not exactly what police were expecting to find. Looks like somebody just sent detectives on a wild goose chase. And almost immediately, they have a good idea who's behind the scheme. A certain someone they've had their eye on all along. The trooper that answered the phone call 
about the key was the same trooper that had interviewed Ken Carpenter a couple of days previously to this. That trooper recognized the voice on the other end of the phone as Ken Carpenter. And sure enough, when investigators check surveillance footage from the general store, they can clearly see Ken in action. It doesn't make a lot of sense to walk into the store, wave your face around on the video, then walk out and in broad daylight, tape something to the bottom of the payphone, and then make a call to the investigators that you just interviewed with and tell them where it is. Why would Ken, of all people, have the key to Penn's deposit box? Detectives aren't sure exactly what Ken's up to, but it's a good bet he had something to do with Penn's disappearance. Armed with a warrant, they search his five-acre property from top to bottom. Ken's not there. His wife is, for a short time, but leaves when she realizes what police are looking for. We were looking for anything that would lead us to the location of Penn Meyer. We were looking for any evidence that could be belongings of hers, possibly find her there. And before long, investigators find some incriminating items inside the house. A document for a property sale that contains Ken's signature and Penn's. They were for Penn Meyer's property. And they were, in fact, a property transfer receipt transferring ownership from Penn Meyer to Ken Carpenter. Investigators aren't sure what to make of the document. It's unlikely that Penn would sell her house to a man she didn't like. But when they stumble across another find in Ken's belongings, things start to make sense. One of the items that we came across was a script of a phone call that was to be made from Penn to her friend. And the script of the phone call matched the information that we were given by the friend about the actual phone call that Penn had made. It stated what to say, it stated about how you need to get back together, drop the restraining order, things like that. Looks like Ken may have been behind that odd call to his former mistress, Kathy Buchanan, after all. That means Ken was inside Penn's house Wednesday morning. But how did he get Penn to follow the script? This was proof positive that that phone call that Penn had made was supervised and coerced by Ken Carpenter. And if he threatened Penn to make the call, Chances are he also forced her to sign over her house to him. Detectives don't know why he would do such a thing, or what happened to Penn after that. We just didn't know. But then police find an ominous clue inside a notebook. Ken, an avid sketcher, kept several books hidden in a file cabinet in his bedroom. In one of his notebooks where he had sketches and it showed a stick figure with a gun shooting a stick figure in the head. And sure enough, outside, hidden in a shed, police find a loaded rifle. There was a 22 caliber rifle that was found and it was wrapped in a raincoat and the raincoat had Ken Carpenter's name on it. Things aren't looking so good for Ken. Everything seems to point to the most heinous of crimes. But without a body, it's circumstantial evidence and police can't prove he did anything to harm Penn. We were searching for any trace evidence. We were searching for anything blood spatter or anything that could determine a location where she may have been shot, killed, or anything bad happened to her at all. Since there's no sign of foul play at Penn's house, investigators stick to Ken's. He's still nowhere to be found, and his wife has also stayed away. For the next four days, the major crime unit leaves no stone unturned on his property 
even sifting through a fire pit in Ken's front yard. The pit itself doesn't strike investigators as strange. Fire pits in New Hampshire are very common, and a lot of people will have a backyard barbecue and they may throw a few logs on a fire. It's what's inside that piques their interest. In the fire pit, there was still smoldering coals, but the fire pit had been covered up by branches, almost like it was they were covering up the fire pit. What could Ken be hiding? For hours, investigators sift through the ashes, hoping for an answer. There's different sifters that they use, and they painstakingly sifted through each bit and piece of this still warm fire pit and found bones. It's a discovery that sends chills down Lamson's spine. He has a sinking feeling they may have just discovered Penn Meyer's final resting place. But there's no way to know for sure. So my first reaction was, well, we need to get these checked and uh, checked right away. Police hope they'll finally get the goods on Ken Carpenter, but there's no guarantee. The debris in the pit looks like it's been burning for several days. In many cases, a lot of evidence is destroyed in a, in a fire. Two weeks after Penn vanished into thin air, police get some answers. While lab workers can't extract DNA from the bone fragments, they do believe the remains are human. I believed that we had found the remains of Penn Meyer. We now completely shifted gears from a missing persons case to a homicide investigation. Just as the investigation heats up, Ken Carpenter throws police another curveball. Police have an arrest warrant with his name on it, but he is nowhere to be found. In Goshen, New Hampshire, state police are on the lookout for Ken Carpenter. As the prime suspect in the Penn Meyer homicide case, he's in a heap of trouble. It's no wonder no one's seen him since the discovery of charred human remains on his property a few days ago. Early on, we were on to who committed this crime, and after finding the remains, we determined that he didn't have a chance of getting away with this. Ken seems determined to keep this game of cat and mouse going. But police are about to grab this troublesome critter by the tail. At the time that we had made application for his arrest, he was continuing to make some phone calls. One of the calls that he made to his estranged girlfriend came back to a local hospital. Looks like Ken's been hiding out in the hospital psych ward. If he thinks that will keep the long arm of the law away, he's got another thing coming. The hospital then told us, we can't keep you out if you've got a search warrant. And if you were gonna start your search, you may wanna start in this particular room. And when Detective Sergeant Russell Lamson shows up at Ken's door, it's clear Ken knows the jig is up. Ken's demeanor was very calm. He didn't seem surprised that we were there. And then when I told him he was under arrest, he just hung his head and uh, asked for his shoes. Ken refuses to say anything about the case and doesn't even flinch when he's told he's being charged with first-degree murder. Pretty cold stuff. He didn't show any emotion. He didn't show any fear. He didn't show any nervousness. He didn't say, what are you talking about? It's a good thing police now have Ken in custody. It buys prosecutor Kirsten Wilson more time to build a case against him. We didn't have the DNA that we're accustomed to, the 
medical examiner or the forensic expert on the stand saying this was Penmire. At that point, we didn't have it. Without a positive ID of the remains found on Ken's property or a cause of death, Kirsten will have a tough time in court proving he did it. But thanks to a most unlikely source, Kirsten will soon have more evidence than she can imagine. All the correctional facilities in New Hampshire record phone calls that are made. And so we had phone calls between Ken Carpenters and his wife. And the conversations show that Ken's wife isn't exactly standing by her man. She knows all about his obsession with Kathy Buchanan and suspects he made Penn disappear when she tried to stop the affair. She was really interrogating him on the phone. And, you know, he tried to be as good as he could on the other end, but I believe that she was seeing through what he was saying. So much so, Ken's wife balks when he asks her to conceal evidence. Ken told her and actually drawn a map to our second burn pile, and he had told her that you, you need to get rid of this. But she doesn't. And when she finds a second pit hidden behind a tree stump at the rear of their property, she immediately calls police. She's in an incredibly awful position. She doesn't want to believe this about her husband, but she also wants to do what's right. And she reached out because it was the right thing to do and notified the police that she had found this dump site. Gonna be 10-8 to Lempster. When investigators arrive on the scene, they can clearly see several pieces of charred sterling silver jewelry in the fire pit. We'd known from seeing pictures of Penn that she was a big fan of really distinctive Native American sterling silver jewelry. And that's not all investigators find in the ashes. Contained within that ashes were much larger fragments, which was very clear to me that it was pieces of skull. Mixed in with the skull fragments, several teeth. It's an astonishing find that confirms everyone's suspicions. The teeth that were found in the fire pits matched exactly the dental records of Penmeyer. Now, only one important question remains. How did Penn die? Was she shot in the head, as investigators suspect? Or did she meet another fate? Prosecutor Kirsten Wilson hopes a forensic anthropologist can piece together the bone fragments and come up with an answer. A year after the arrest of Ken Carpenter, she calls us and says, you won't believe what I have. She told us that she had reconstructed the skull and that behind the left ear, there was a almost perfectly round, what would be consistent with a bullet hole. There's no way to know if the hole was made by Ken's 22 caliber rifle, but prosecutors are confident they still have a strong case. On October 11th, 2007, Ken Carpenter is found guilty of first-degree murder and incineration of a body. He's sentenced to life in prison without parole. Based on evidence painstakingly collected by investigators, Police believe they know what happened during the early morning hours of Wednesday, February 23, 2005. Ken did not like Penn. He felt she was responsible for his girlfriend trying to get away from him and for him potentially losing his wife instead of holding himself accountable for having an extramarital affair. 
so Ken decides to put an end to Penn's meddling. He shows up at her house while she's out walking her dog. He has some sort of a weapon, maybe the 22 caliber rifle that we found. He takes her hostage. Ken forces Penn to sign over her house to him. We know that Penn was crying over the documents that he was forcing her to write. He then makes her call his former mistress. Penn told her that she really should get back together with him. I was mistaken. You really should be together. You guys are meant to be. And Part of his crazy plan to win back his lover. He was trying to give the appearance that Penn left the area and wanted her friend to have all of her property and live happily ever after with Ken. Convinced he has what he needs, he finishes out his plan. When she's of absolutely no more use to him, he puts a bullet in the back of her head, dismembers her, and burns her in his fire pit. When Penn was gone, I really think he felt his troubles were taken away. But the joke's on Ken. His cockamamie scheme makes him a suspect from the get-go, and investigators pull out all the stops to put an end to his game. For the folks of Goshen, Penn may be gone, but she's not forgotten. Joanne Rowe knows Penn is looking down on her every step of the way. She was such an incredible person. She is definitely one of the reasons I believe in angels. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.